0: Judge Ryan, thank you so much for for being with us today and taking the time to come out. We know that travel in these days is particularly difficult and and I think students are particularly hungry to see people. a
1: what's for Particularly.
0: a right well uh, and and uh, our students are anxious to see uh, people coming from uh, outside of Charlottesville in with with the kind of experience that you have, and so we really appreciate. Uh, your willingness to come down today.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, your dean is a longtime friend of mine. We clerked at the same time uh, at the Supreme Court. She clerked for Justice Breyer when I clerked for Justice Thomas, and we were remarking on the fact that our clerk years remains very close, um, despite the fact that we might have differences of opinion about different areas of law, and that we she suggested that we should write an op-ed for the rest of the country that if we can do it, so can you. Um, so. Um, you guys are very fortunate to have um, your, the Dean that you have.
0: Well, it's one of the things that I think we really pride ourselves on at UVA, right, is that we do bring together people from a variety of different backgrounds, with a lot of different uh, uh, understandings, and, and we host those kinds of conversations all the time. It's really what we think is part of our identity here. Uh, and so we're, we're so glad to have you. Um, I, I, I was told that there would be a fire to be sought by by the side of. So there's no fire, but uh still I, I I really just wanted to have uh to structure this as much as an informal conversation as we can. Um I do want to be a little bit formal at the beginning which is t- to issue a disclaimer about my presence here. I am clearly here in my professorial capacity and not in my capacity as a reserve judge advocate in the United States Army, although I am incredibly proud of that service. Um uh, uh I do want to make it clear that uh, I'm here um, uh, as a civilian. Um, and you're and not
1: responsible for any of my answers.
0: So I think it's pretty clear that I'm not really responsible for anything. So <laughs> uh, no one would put me in a position of responsibility if they could help it. Um, and certainly we've, we've, uh, 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 I'm, not, I'm not responsible for your answers. And hopefully not even for my own. We'll see. <laughs> um, so I, I really wanted to ask you, I wanted to start by asking you, um, you know you're an officer of, you were an officer of Marines before you went to law school. and I was wondering if you could tell um, uh, our students a little bit about that shift and about how you went from uh, from being a line marine officer to to becoming a judge advocate and what that was like.
1: Sure. Um, I was very fortunate um, in the jobs that I had in the Marine Corps. Um, people sometimes think that the Marine Corps, because it's the Marine Corps, you know, is anti-female or something like that. And if it is, I'm like not not a good living testament to that because I had every opportunity. Um, I was a platoon commander. I chose my military occupational specialty um, to maximize my chances of being an actual leader of Marines because there are some jobs that you're more likely to be able to have platoons and companies than others. And the communications field was one of those. And so I was able to be a company commander I'm sorry, a platoon commander, an S3 officer, a company commander. Um, and then there came a point in time where I thought, I'm gonna end up being a staff officer for the rest of my life because the next natural progression would have been to be a communications officer for a division or something like that. And most of those things are were infantry or artillery, which at the time, um, women were not allowed to serve in those capacities. And my battalion commander um, by happenstance was a, a JAG. He was a lawyer and he said, You know meg why don't you apply for this law education program and i'd actually wanted to thought about going to law school after college but i didn't really like most of the people that were going to law school and i hate public speaking so why am i here um and so i just thought i couldn't be a lawyer like i thought i can't be a lawyer if i'm not going to be f lee bailey and so but when he presented this to me later in time i was like well that sounds like an interesting opportunity and so that's how i ended up going to law school which is it was like oh i love the marine corps but i don't necessarily want to go be an, a, a, a basically on a staff for the rest of my life. And so um, that was how that worked out.
0: And so, um, so you took advantage of the funded legal education program? Yes. Um, could you talk about that a little bit and what that was like and what it was like coming back to the Marines as a judge advocate?
1: Sure. Um, so all services, I think, to one degree or another, have a thing called the law education program, which is if you are an active duty person in one military occupational specialty or another, you can apply... Um, for this law education program, and depending on whether you get funded or unfunded, you have a a commitment to pay back a certain amount of time. Um, And you basically go to law school, that's your job. Your J-O is, Justice Thomas would say, it's your J-O-B. And so I obviously, in this first of my class, because I took my job very seriously, right? Which is, this is my job, the Marine Corps has assigned me to go to Notre Dame Law School. Um, And it was actually great. Going back into the field as a lawyer, Guess what, who thinks that military people like their lawyers? Does anyone think that that the commanders want a lawyer to tell them that they can't do something that they wanna do? I mean, the answer is they don't particularly, do you guys You guys agree, right? Do they like us telling them what to do? Like they don't like us telling them what to do at all. Um, and it's somewhat helpful, in fact, I think very helpful if you come um, from the logication program, because guess what? you have ribbons on your chest, right? your your, your uniform is squared away, you hopefully are a good officer, and so they take you a little bit more seriously. Though I did have the colonel from HMX1 tell me that if I came back one more time, he was gonna throw me down the stairs. Um, So, but that was, uh, things happen, right? Um, But you still, um, so I think there is some benefit to having that experience as a lawyer in the military because they don't really like you to begin with and it gives you a little bit more gravitas.
0: Was it, was it-
1: Do you guys agree? Generally, yeah. But I mean, people would say, they were like, how can I be a good, you know, how can I be a good, you know, lawyer in the, in the military? And I was like, be a good officer, right? Be a good officer. You have to be a good officer first. And then I think that everything else flows from there.
0: And did it feel differently being on a staff, right? So you had been in line positions and in a couple of different command positions. Right. And then you came back and you were going to be a staff officer, right? And you were going to work on a staff. Um, did you... Did you feel differently about that or do you feel like law school prepared you for that in any particular way?
1: So I was, uh, until I was um, aide-de-camp to the commandant, I wasn't really on a staff so much. I was never a staff judge advocate, I was a trial counsel. And so I like worked basically on my own cases um, and communicated with the convening authorities, if that makes sense. Like so different commanders, if they, they had their, their problem children that committed crimes and I prosecuted their cases for them. And so I worked with the commanders um, and with my staff or with the junior um, trial counsel. So the bad part of coming back as a a FLEP person is that I was a senior captain and I had never practiced law in my life, but because I was a senior captain, all of a sudden I was supervising people that had more experience than I did. So that was a little awkward. but it just is the way that the military is, and I just had to get up to speed more quickly than I might have otherwise.
0: Um, and so, um, did you, were there a lot of military justice opportunities at Notre Dame? Did you get to focus on that at all in law school, or, or did you really have to pick that up after you came back in?
1: Um, I mean, at the time that I went to Notre Dame Law School, you were required to take criminal law and criminal procedure um criminal law and criminal procedure and i took some whatever advanced criminal law courses that there were but there wasn't really a military law class at the time Um, one of the two classes that one of the two of the three classes that i teach at notre dame are focused on military law one is just a class in military law which is basically how do you practice law in the military based on um um, Judge Maggs, um, former Judge Maggs book that he wrote with um, Lisa Skank. Um, another one that I teach with Judge Hardy, um, who's replaced me on a court is one on constitutional issues in the military justice system. But there were no courses like that um, when I was at Notre Dame.
0: Um, and so, um, I mean, I talk to students probably every year, I talk to a few students who are thinking about service in the Judge Advocate General's Corps in one service or the other, right? Uh, is there any really, Is there anything that you could that you could say to them about the the path to becoming a judge advocate
1: um Well, first of all, I'd like to say I, I think it's a great opportunity to to serve in the military i mean it's a great opportunity to serve your country and I think it's also a really useful career path for people that have any interest in litigation in particular um, You will get more opportunities to do more early on than you ever will at any law firm um, and Do you guys agree with me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, my first case that I did was the contested rape case. It was a contested general court martial case with members, which is like with a jury. Um, There is no and and I think it got reversed on appeal 10 years later because like I was like, and this person I like probably did bad argument, but but you get a lot of chances to do to do things while working with some really great people. Um, in terms of the path to Judge Advocate, you guys are fortunate with you do have the Judge Advocate General School right here next to you, and I'm sure that people will be happy to talk to you. Um, my experience is you need to have people that are re- able and willing to write you good re- letters of recommendation. You need to be physically fit in order to pass all the things that you need to get into the military. You need to not have a criminal record, which hopefully you don't if you're at University of Virginia Law School. Um, and, and timing, like which is you have to pay attention to deadlines, which is they have very specific timing deadlines um, to get your applications in. Um, and they, they take those things pretty seriously. So it's just a matter of organizing yourself um, and and being prepared to understand that like you are going to be in the military, and part of being in the military is being physically fit.
0: Um, yeah, no, I think that's really helpful, right? I think sometimes people tend to, they, they pay a little bit more attention to the, uh, whether the substantive demands or the legal demands and don't think as much about, about
1: the, you're going to be an officer right you're going to be an officer and you know and so being an officer has certain responsibilities oh and don't say anything weird at your interview so for example no so for example and this is a true story one of my students at Harvard um, was like you know I, I applied for the judge advocate you know core and And I was turned down. I was like, well, that seems odd. But then I go around the class there because they have classes of 600, like their their 1L class is 600 too, you know. And so they don't know each other the way that you guys might know each other the way that I knew people in my law school class. And so the first class, I go around the room and say, you know, say who you are, where you want to undergrad, and something interesting about yourself. You know, two, three interesting things about yourself. And I start out, and they're not very interesting, and so I won't repeat them here. But he said, like, his interesting things were, I'm a vegan, I'm a minimalist and something else. And so I said, you know, did you tell them that at your judge advocate interview? And he's like, well, yes. I was like, those are the kinds of things you need to tell your fiance. Like if you're getting married, like I'm a vegan and a minimalist and I don't believe in owning more than 50 things. I'm like, but do you guys disagree? Like that would just look weird. Like they don't, it's information they don't need to know. Right. Like, like, cause you're not lying, but it's just like that you don't need to So you don't say anything weird at your interview. No
0: M- matter what you're going to emphasize, right? Maybe diet isn't the most important thing to emphasize in a right, job or interview. Like, or, yeah. and,
1: and so it was very interesting, because everyone's like, what do you do about a pair of socks? So a pair of socks counts as one item if you're a minimalist.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that probably makes sense, right? Yeah, you know, I, don't know. I feel I'm that a way about a, So
1: I would say, no, it counts as two. I feel that it's way about items. a bedroom set. About
0: what a bedroom set, I think is probably a bedroom one set I, is yeah, one yeah, item. Yeah, I don't think he item. would agree with you on that no, at all. Oh, well, but. well, I, I guess I would make a bad one. Um, so um, in '99, you resigned from the Marines and you started the transition to civilian practice by clerking, which I think it that itself I want to ask you about. I mean, is was that is that common among your colleagues in in the JAG Corps that they would leave the JAG Corps and go clerk because it's a little bit later than. Right, most students clerk. So I actually just kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, Well, a couple of things, which is part of the reason I left the Marine Corps is that they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. So like when I left law school, I would have been a normal person to like go clerk, right? Because I was first in my class. I was on law review. Those are the kinds of people that like usually are interested in clerking and usually are able to get clerkships. Um, And the Marine Corps said, absolutely not. You can't. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm signed up. I, I can't. Um, But I wanted to, like I wanted to clerk, and so when um, uh, my husband uh, practices in a very, like, niche field of law, he's an ERISA attorney. Um, There aren't a lot of places for ERISA attorneys to practice in the places that the Marine Corps has bases. And so when General Krulak was, was retiring, it was a perfect opportunity for me to say, Well, I can't imagine a Marine Corps without you, so I will leave too. Um, But it was mostly because I didn't want to have, my husband would have, but like, what was he going to do in these different places? And so we decided from, I was going to get out of the Marine Corps and I said, well, I would like to clerk. And he said, great, you know, and I didn't know anything about it. And so I like, so I sat, I remember at the Pentagon on days when I wasn't like the main aide, like reading cases, like, I'm like, oh, you know, who do I want to clerk? Like, this person seems interesting and this person seems interesting and this person seems crazy. Right. And so like came up with a very short list of people to apply to that were in the DC area because like, I didn't want to inconvenience myself um, by having to go someplace else And that was, and I just thought it would be, and it ended up being a great transition between being in the military and being in private practice.
0: Um, Have you seen a lot of other judge advocates make that transition from the military to private practice? And if so, could you talk about that and and sort of what you see? Because I think that is something that people think about if they're, whether they're going to serve for, you know, four or six years, or if they're going to make a career out of the military, whether they're going to make that transition to private right. practice.
1: Right. Well, I think I think that there are very few people that go into any aspect of the military. Like it's not like everyone retires from the military. I left after 13 years, which I think is somewhat unusual, because people they they're in a they're someplace and they're like, well, I started this, so I might as well stay till I retire. And I was in a different position and just said, well, that's silly. Like, I want to get down with the rest of my life and do different things. But I never planned on staying. You don't have to stay. And most people don't stay. But they come. They get experience. Um, they may decide to stay. But if they don't, um, I think you are positioned to do anything you want to do. I think you're positioned to apply to be a law clerk. I think you're positioned to apply to be at a U.S. attorney's office. I think you're positioned to apply to be at a law firm. Because um, guess what? People see you know, U.S. Marine Corps, United States Army, or U.S. Air Force, you know, on your resume, and they're like, oh, this is a person that's going to be squared away and on time and not complain, right, and not complain and, and work hard, right, and guess what? Guess what people value most in law associates? People that will get their work done and not complain, right, and when I was your age, like, that's what most people were like, it's not quite as common these days, no offense to you guys, but, um, people complain a lot more and they wanna work a lot less, but they wanna get paid a lot. Um, so it's a very bizarre um, metric. It's true. It all sounds
0: right to me, right? I mean.
1: No, but so, I mean, you really, it does make you, it makes you, your resume stick out. Um, and I think you do learn a lot of valuable skills, both about people and about the law um, in the, in any judge advocate core.
0: Um, and so, I mean, do you see, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, do you see a particular path? Because this is one of the things, people will come to me and, you know, they'll be thinking about going into the JAG Corps. And they'll be thinking, well, they want to do, you know, they want to do a period of military service, but then they, you know, they want to be able to move back into practice. And, and I try to talk to them about it, and I see a lot of them move into government practice, some of them move into private practice. And I guess I was wondering, especially given your time in private practice, if you've seen a, a sort of a particular path that people follow, or if it really is a little bit more general than that.
1: I, I think it's it's as individual as, as individuals are, right? I think that it, it it doesn't you're not pigeonholed into doing anything in particular. I think that you can go into private practice. I think you go into government work. Um it's easier if you have the security clearance to get a job in the government. You also have a veterans preference um for federal government employee employment, I think, for the rest of your life. Do you guys that's correct, right? I'm not making this up. Um so they're like I'm like you're it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. Um but you're not pigeonholed you can still do whatever you want you can pick up whatever you thought you might have wanted to do when you left law school some other path that you might have taken but for being in the Corps, and you can just continue on but with having that experience and and credential behind you which i think is helpful
0: um and uh when you're when you were in practice was there a particular area that you worked in more or
1: i was i was a i was a i was a litigator um and what you do as a litigator is you take whatever case that your client has Uh, whether you're being a plaintiff, whether whether you're defending them or whether you were going after someone that they want to go after. Um, And the issues are as varied as your clients, right? And so you become an area expert for the moment on a particular area uh, or particular issue. I once knew more about lead paint than probably anyone almost in the world. I'm joking, but no, because we were defending um, our our client against um, the, the state of Rhode Island. Um, where they were suing based on a theory of public nuisance, which was ridiculous. Um, but it was based on lead paint, right? And so I learned everything in the world about lead paint and lead paint experts and everything like that and what you could and couldn't do to keep things that had lead paint in them safe or not safe, right? And then the case was done, and I flushed all that out of my brain and moved on to, like, the next thing that we worked on, Yeah, right?
0: That's what litigation is like, right? That's you... what
1: litigation is like, which is different than what my husband does, which is he is an area expert in ERISA. In um, a particular areas of risk, so he knows everything about it. You could call him at two o'clock in the morning and ask him about something, and and he knows it always because he's an area expert, All right? So it's it's very different. Being litigate, being in litigation or appellate practice is different than being like a tax lawyer, for example, right? Or a labor lawyer,
0: right? Right. So uh, other than your ability to to get the job done and not complain, are there particular skills that you think you brought for being a judge advocate into practice that? that you um, that were particularly helpful?
1: Um, probably the same thing that helped me in law school, which is just discipline, right? Just discipline, um, you know, being used to working hard and, and sometimes being tired and still having to just get things done, right? And I think that that's an incredible, um, it's not like it's my personal attribute, it is a good attribute to have as a law student and as a lawyer.
0: Um, I do want to ask you about the CAF, and I was wondering maybe if you could talk to us a little bit about the CAF and and how it's structured. I know it's a little, you know, for one of the things about being in law school, right? We read lots and lots of, you know, lots and lots of uh, court decisions, and we talk about Article 3 judges, and, you know, especially for the 1Ls who maybe don't know the distinction between Article 1 and Article 3, a little bit about how the CAF works and how it relates to the military justice system.
1: Sure. So when he's talking about the CAF, he's talking about the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, um, which is the court that I served on, and which Douglas Mags' father serves on, and which one of my, my one of my very first law clerks replaced me on the court and serves on there as well. Um, how many of you are one Ls? Okay, so a bunch of you. Okay, so you. There's no reason that you would know this, um, but Article Three of the Constitution um, sets forth the, United, the Supreme Court and such other courts as they decide will be constituted, right? And there's certain things that, that the judges get to have. You guys know about separation of powers, right? Like you know that much just from like whatever. And so one of the ways that the founders decided that they were gonna protect the courts, right, which is that whatever else that the judges were gonna have, life tenure and an inability to, to um, change their salary. Why do you suppose that they did that latter thing? All right, so basically, like, we can't fire you, and we can't starve you out, right? So, we, all right, fine, we can't fire you, but we, we'll starve you out by saying you now get paid zero, all right? So those two things were to allow the judiciary to be independent. Um, so lifetime tenure, you can't, and you can't change your salary. Um, then there's this other variety of courts, which people can debate whether it's constitutional or not. I, I'm going to be mum on that, my view on that, since I get an annuity for the rest of my life, so it would be bad for me to say that my court is unconstitutional.
0: Awkward, um, yeah.
1: Right, it could be bad, right? But there's a, a, a variety of courts that are not Article Three courts, they're uh, Article One courts, um, and the judges for those courts are still nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate, but it's for a term of years, so not for life. Um, which I actually think is is the best thing of all, right, which is, like, not for life, um, right, it's 15 years. Um, and so, basically, that's the kind of court that my court is, and they tend to be specialized courts. So, for example, the United States Tax Court is an Article One court. Um, my court is an Article I, the Court of International Trade, I think, is an Article One court. And in all those instances, like usually you have some background or, or, or either in criminal law for my court for years. Um, the people that were, were nominated for my court did not have a military background. Um, I think now, um, of the four judges that are on the court now, three of them have some military background. Obviously I had had some military background. Um, judge Hardy, um, had the background of having clerked for me on that court and having taught military law and constitutional issues in the military justice system at, at Notre Dame and at Harvard. So that was his military background. And I actually think it's great to have someone that doesn't have a military background because why? The purpose of the United States Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces is to provide civilian oversight, civilian oversight in the military justice system. So it's a, it's a court that has five judges that are appointed from civilian life, and it used to be that if you, if you had retired from the military, that you could not serve on the court. Um, and I think that that would still be a good idea, but I don't get to make the laws. I just get to read them, right? And so the Congress changed that rule. Um, and provide, mil- provide civilian oversight means what? It means that you go in the military, like you have a trial, like you did something bad. Who here wants to be the person... Douglas Douglas um, um, smuggled 23 grams of cocaine um, into Iraq, and he's now being court-martialed. He's being Douglas. defended by an excellent by an excellent defense counsel. So he's only going to get um, eight months, right? He's only going to get eight months instead of 48 months that the government wanted him to get. Um, and so he has his he has his his trial. Um, and then he complains. Right. Because he, he, he like got this great deal. But now he's mad. Right. He's mad because he's like, I shouldn't have had this happen because um, that 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 evidence that they used against me should have been suppressed. Like there should have been a motion to suppress. It should have been suppressed. And I'm upset about that. Right. And so his case is going to get reviewed by the Court of Criminal Appeals for the what service do you want to be in? army so for by the Good court choice. of by the court of appeals for the armed forces right but they they have appellate lawyers so the military people they get free they get free lawyers at trial and they get free lawyers on appeal like both at the, the intermediate level of appeal which is court of appeal criminal court of appeals the court of appeals to the armed for sorry army court of criminal appeals you would think i'd be able to get this right after all these years um and so those poor people, like that defense count, that uh, appellate defense counsel is going to do what? They're going to, even if he doesn't know to complain, they're going to read that entire record of trial looking for things to complain about, right? And so he doesn't know to complain, but they're going to read that whole thing, right? And then they are going to, like, find something to complain about. Am I right? Like, and then they are going to file an appeal with the Army Court of Criminal Appeals saying we complain about X, well, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals doesn't just have to like rest on like he complained about X. They, too, are going to look at that whole entire case and say, is there anything in here that gives me pause either legally or factually? Because they have this very unique ability that they can read the entire record, right? And say, you know, understanding that the people below like saw the witnesses and looked at the evidence, well, I'm not convinced that this person is guilty. I don't know how long they'll keep that bright, but they still, they still, you say it's a right, but it's also like it's a, it's a burden, right? It's a lot of work. But everywhere along this system, like they've got two people, they got the appellate defense counsel, and they have the whole, the whole court martial, the whole ACA panel, like scouring this thing, looking for any problems that might have arisen, right? So they have do, done their job, which is a very hard job, and I always say that the, the, it's a harder job than I had for sure. Um, and then they make their decision like the evidence should have been suppressed it shouldn't have been suppressed the appellate defense counsel still not happy right aka said you know nope, no, no reason to suppress this here they can then appeal to my court right Um, And we have discretionary review for the most part. Death penalty cases we have to review. Um, If the judge advocate general of a service um, certifies an issue, we have to at least look at the issue. We don't have to answer necessarily because they, well, the Air Force was notorious for this. Do you guys remember that? Every time the government lost at the the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, they would certify the issue to us. And I got really tired of it really quickly because it's not supposed to be an extra way for the prosecution to complain. Um, but anyway it comes up to us we have discretionary review two of the ju- two of the five judges have to vote to grant the case and if we vote to grant the case then it comes up to us and then once we've granted it or taken any action on it our, ca- our cases are reviewable by the supreme court um, if we deny pe- the, the petition if we say deny we don't think that there's anything there's no there there's nothing here just nothing to see here and so we just deny it um it's dead and that's one of the things i think that people criticize the military justice system for the most, which is that if we deny petitions that they're dead in the water, so those people cannot file a a petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court. Um, My response to that is go to Congress, like get them to change that rule. I have no, you know, that's up to them. Um, Anecdotally, I will say this, having clerked at the Supreme Court and having looked at the petitions in my court, if we don't find any there, there, the Supreme Court is not going to find any there, there. Does does that make sense? Which is, it's not like we are trying to protect the government or anyone else by like denying a, a petition. And if we can't find a reason to grant to grant um, to grant a particular issue, there's no way the Supreme Court. And that's, but that, again, that's just anecdotal, which is the lowest form of evidence. Um, but it's just practical as a practical matter. I think it's true. Do, does that make sense to you? Do you agree? Yeah. Which is, I mean. The Supreme Court does not do fact-bound error correction. Um, CAF sometimes does, which is we see the case, the legal issue is like not an interesting one, but we think that someone got something wrong based on a factual issue. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't grant those sorts of cases, and, and CAF does.
0: So that, I guess that goes to my next question, which is how is, CAF, how is CAF different right from other courts of appeals, or how is service on the CAF different from other um, uh, courts of appeals? Is it, do you think it's, the posture that you have towards cases or is it the fact that you've through service on CAF wind up specializing uh in a particular area of law what is it you think that really makes it the most well, different
1: so I think the, the most unique thing that the, the unique thing about CAF is what I just mentioned which is that we have discretionary review right and the other courts of a court, circuit courts of appeal they don't have discretionary review they have jurisdictional aspects about whether they can hear a case or not and time limits that they take very seriously which is CAF now takes time limits more seriously thank you Judge Ryan um, because why I came from an article three background right? I practice in article three courts I clerked on article three courts and so I was like their time limits are there for a reason and they should matter um, so th- it's the discretionary review is one thing and they, the other thing is the limited jurisdiction right which is my court has jurisdiction to do what review basically the, fine, the, the, the decisions of the courts of criminal appeals, right? period. And what do they get to review? Court-martials, like court-martials, like not, not things related to the military that aren't court-martials, just court-martials, the findings and sentences approved by the convening authority. So what kind of cases does that mean that we get to see? Like it's a very limited category of cases. It's all criminal cases, right, that were prosecuted in the military justice system, like period. And guess what? When you read the news and they say that like, the military doesn't care about, about prosecuting um, sex offenses, if, we didn't, if they didn't prosecute sex offenses, I don't know what else they've been doing because I, that was a steady diet of mine for 14 years, right, was reading cases that involved sex offenses and child sexual abuse and child pornography. Um, so do I miss my job? I love my colleagues and I love my work, but I do not miss a steady diet of those petitions, right, because it's all criminal law. Um, and guess what? what? I'm not, just for the record, I'm not a libertarian. Um, I am conservative, but I am not a libertarian, and so some things I think are objectively bad, um, and the things that I just mentioned are objectively bad, and so having to read cases and petitions about objectively bad things, every and I did my petitions in the morning, like, do you guys agree, like, 15 years of that is enough, right, so... Um, so that's the way, with limited jurisdiction, limited subject matter, which is the nature of an Article I court and the fact that we have discretionary review. And then we sit, all five of us sit on every case because people ask that sometimes, which is, you know, how do you guys do this? Because like others, like the circuit courts of appeals, they have panels of three judges that hear different cases. And all five of us sit on every case. Well, right now, um, actually, four judges are sitting in every case and the senior judge is sitting in because um, they have not nominated um, a successor for Chief Judge Stuckey. Um, and I understand that Senator Hawley has said that he won't, that he's not going to vote on anyone from the uh, for the Department of Defense until General Milley and the SecDef resign or something like that. So Senator Hawley, this is actually not the military. It's civilian oversight of the military justice system. And it's disruptive. It's disruptive to have um, senior judges sit in. Can you guys imagine why that would be? Any of you? So like I right now am slated to like sit on a case in January, right, and that notice will go out so the people will kind of know what's happening. But the reality is you get, you have your colleagues, right, and you have things like you work, a certain kind of collegiality, a certain like understanding of how things are going to work. And then all of a sudden, you like jet in a different person. Like for every for every hearing, like you know, this week it was um, Judge Urman, You know, next month it's going to be Judge Crawford. You know, then January it's going to be Judge Ryan, and it's just different, right? I mean, it's just it's not. I think it's disruptive and it's not fair to the council. And also in terms of the um, the petitions, right? It takes two votes to grant a petition. Um, if there's five people that are gonna vote, whether you're gonna grant a petition. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that the the chances you're gonna get two votes are higher if there's five judges and if there's four judges. Like, as a matter of math, doesn't that work? I think, yes, yes. Um, You know, particularly like, unless it was something I thought was really stupid. Like if someone said, you know, well, will someone give me another vote? I'd be like, yeah, I'll give you another vote. Like, it's not like we're overworked, you know? And so, no, just as a matter of like, I would do that just as a matter of process. If I thought it was a really bad idea, then I would fight like hell to like have it not get granted because I was like, this is just going to be a waste of time. Um, But I don't know how different people do, right? And so it is disruptive to not have a a person nominated and confirmed.
0: How many cases a year does CAF usually hear?
1: I I don't know. I don't know. Um, Not not as many as would seem reasonable. But I mean, but you can't just grant every piece of junk that comes in, right? Right. Because what happens if you grant a case and the law is well settled, and there's no relief available, right? Nothing good happens, yeah. right? Which is, for one thing, the appellant's counsel is like going, I have to stand up here and argue what? Right, because they're like, why did CAF grant this case? Right, and then it also raises hope, like, well, they granted this. Maybe, right, you know, the client is like, maybe I'm gonna have this great win. And it's like, no, we were just bored. Sorry, <laughs> just joking, I'm, yeah. right? No, and then it's like, and the other bad thing is, like, we don't really do, there's a thing called a per opinion which is like a very short dash thing, procurement opinion, which is you just say, we've reviewed this, blah, blah, blah. This case said X, you know, um, the opinion below is affirmed, right? We don't usually do that. And so what happens, and no offense to men, but it's, I call it every dog must pee on the log, um, which is now you've granted this thing, like, and people have argued and the opinion has been assigned to some judge or another and they feel like, they feel like, well, we did all this, we need to say something, right? And we don't want to just repeat what we said before, because then it would seem really stupid, right? And so then you write this thing, but you want to, like, change it a little bit, and then uncertainty gets built into the law, because last time you said happy, right? And this time you said glad, right? And then people are like, oh, well, glad must mean something different than it's happy. The glad standard, right? obviously. And now it's the glad standard, not the happy standard, Right. And so I personally think that it's not a good idea to grant cases where the law is well settled unless you plan on changing it um, for that reason, which is that people feel like they need to say something, like something, anything different, and then people think now it's the glad standard, not the happy standard. That was a very good example, right? But it's, it's true, right? And so, you know, one opportunity, chance would be like, well, then just do procurium opinions, which would do what I just said, but they're like, well, that's crazy talk. Um, you know but anyway i digress i'm no, very, no, I'm very no, good no. at digressing no
0: it's a really i think it's a really interesting problem that you have right in part because you do have you have discretionary review and you have review of facts and law and so i think it's it is easy to get into cases where you'd wind up just reiterating yeah, just what the just, just
1: to be clear we, we look at the facts but we don't have we don't we right, don't have right, the, right. the ability to reverse things based on right. factual sufficiency right. we can only decide questions right. of law which is right. when i said that like when if the judge advocate general certifies things we have to look at it. Doesn't mean we have to answer. Because if they ask us to do something, which is basically invading the fact-finding province of right. the courts of criminal appeal, right. we just say that's not our job. Right. Right. At least we're supposed to say that's not our job. I think we did pretty good on that.
0: Well, you have. It just seems like there's opportunity to act at a much more detailed level for y'all, and and avoiding that, I think, is right. That's a, that's going to be a challenge. Um, and so it's good to hear that you think about that and you worry about uh, avoiding those situations. Um, it seems like at their core. Um, military legal practice and civilian pre- legal practice might be similar in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, there are some, there are some notable differences, right? Certainly in the way offices are run or, or things like that. Do you see on the CAF a difference between military counsel and civilian council or, or do you see practice that looks pretty similar?
1: Um, in terms of the council that appear before us? Yeah. Um, there's a small cadre of civilians, um, that practice in front of my court, um, or that take um, su- take cases up to the Supreme Court. And um, I always joke, there's a person named Steve Laddick, and just to annoy him, I call him Steve Laddick the Great, um, both because he thinks he's great and because he's incredibly tall, like he's like a foot and a half taller than me. I'm exaggerating, but he's pretty tall, don't you think? Yeah. Um, so there's a small group, um, and, you know, Professor Vladek, um, I'm I'm joking. He actually is a very excellent counsel, but I do like to tease him because it makes him makes him uncomfortable, um, which that's what teasing is for, right? Um, you know, he tends to do more of the work um, up at the Supreme Court level, if that makes sense, just because he is familiar with Supreme Court practice. Um, though a member of your faculty, Professor. is that how you say his name, Um, actually filed a really interesting um, amicus brief, which ended up being the whole point of a Supreme Court case. But in terms of like whether they're better, um, the worst are ones that they're not familiar with the military and it's just some person that they hired that's not in the cadre that I just talked about. So it's some civilian that really isn't familiar with the military justice system at all. And they come and argue and of course they're at somewhat of a disadvantage because they don't know the language and they don't know the rules and they don't understand what our court is like, and so they potentially kind of snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, if that makes sense. Um, the military counsel, I, uh, overall, I find to be excellent. Um, there was one poor Navy um, appellate defense counsel once that, I mean, she just didn't, remember I always said, I didn't wanna to go to law school because I didn't think I, I don't like public speaking. Um, she didn't like public speaking, and like she almost passed out every time she argued um and but it wasn't her fault right because she didn't ask to be an appellate defense counsel the the navy assigned her to that job so i was actually fairly kind to her because i was like she didn't ask she didn't ask to be here right she didn't ask to be here and especially we there was a case united states versus pack and i'll never forget the supreme court precedent directly on point that meant she lost and i tried to argue that we shouldn't grant the case they insisted that we grant the case and then we took it to project outreach so we're at like the university of indiana like with a crowd of like i'm exaggerating but like 500 million people sitting there and she gets up to argue and judge efron had not transformed the court the the the, the thing into a federal courthouse yet and so she started to talk and he said something and then like it all went downhill from there um but they're very good, and the cadre of, of civilian lawyers that practice in the court, I think, are, are also good, but I, I don't really see a difference in quality between the two.
0: Do you, is that an, if does it wind up being an issue for judges who don't have a military background, or do they just kind of come up to speed pretty quickly? It,
1: it's, like being a, it's like being a litigator, right, which is like you just get up to speed, right, which is like you have no choice, so you just get up to speed. Um, I don't think, um, so I'll take Judge Hardy as an example. I mean, did it help him? To have taught those classes with me um, in terms of like the substance of the work i think it helped him tremendously in getting confirmed right i think it helped him in getting nominated and i think it helped him in getting confirmed right but i don't think that it's necessary or how, that has particularly been helpful um, my law clerks when i was when i was at the court i think i had maybe two two maybe three law clerks in, in all the time that i was there that had any military background and what I did during the summer was like, I usually do all my petitions on my own initially, and I don't send them to the clerks unless I'm like, I have a question, a particular legal question about this point or that point or another point. Otherwise I just would just motor through and do them. Um, but in the summer, what I, what I would do to get my clerks up to speed with the lingo is I would like, it was, cause I don't like to make work. Does that make sense? You guys know what make work is? You like make up work for people to do just to keep them busy. I didn't like people doing that to me, and I, so I don't do it. Guess what? If you don't like people doing it to you, you probably shouldn't do it to other people. But there was a purpose in the summer of having them go through the petitions, and I, and the reason was this, which is that that's how they learned the rules, that's how they learned the language, and that's all that they really needed in terms of that. Because people say, like, do your clerks need to have a military background? I'm like, no, you know, no, absolutely not. But I did, I will confess, and they all know this because they then trained the next clerks, is they do now know I didn't really need their, their, them to send me a memo on what I should do in a case, that I was just really doing it for their benefit. Does, does that make sense? So, um, But yeah, and the judges do the same thing. Like, they just, you just have to learn it. It's, it's not that hard. Do you guys agree it's not that hard? To, like, the, the military has this thing. It's called the Manual for Court Martial. It's the most beautiful book known in the, in the world, right? And they have rules of evidence that, like, put the federal rules of evidence to shame. Why? Because it's supposed to be this book that you can take and you're a commander in the field or you're a trial counsel in Afghanistan, and you want to know, can I do this? Like, is this search going to be good? Is this search not going to be good, right? There's no rules like that in the federal rules of evidence, right? There's just the Constitution. The military rules of evidence, like, have this whole thing, like, laid out. Like, you want to do a search, this is, like, what you must do. You want to do an inspection, this is how you can do it, right? Um, And so it's this beautiful book that has everything all in one place. And so it's, you just take this book home with you, and you read it, right? And it has rules, it has statutes, right? Don't you hear you think? it's like it's, it's great. If you want to know what this current state of the, Fourth Amem- of the law is under the Fourth Amendment, go look at the military rules of evidence and it will tell you. It's true, do you disagree?
0: No, I don't disagree. I mean, it, it, you've got me thinking about something else, which is, I mean, to talk a little bit about, um, I don't know about the differences or about aspects of, of the military justice system, right? So, um, because it, there is sort of a different approach. And um, I guess what I'm wondering, you know, if you could, and I don't think a lot of people have visibility to it. um, You know, if you could tell somebody something about the military justice system, you could tell civilians who really had no exposure to it, one thing about the military justice system, uh, what would you tell them?
1: One thing, I think it's incredibly fair. I mean, I think it's, I think, and I'm not the person to coin this phrase, but I mean, people have said this before, and I think it's true, which is, if you were innocent you would want to be tried in the military justice system and if you were guilty you would rather be tried in the civilian court right because the members that it's called a jury it, the mem- it's not a, it's not a jury but it serves the same function the members um, that are going to hear your case um, have a certain rank they have a certain like level of education and they are going to listen to the instructions and they're going to follow the instructions and so when they are instructed on the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt they're going to listen to it, right? Um, and so they're going to take their job seriously because it's what their are j- Just like going to law school was my job, their job for that period of time, however unhappy they are about being there, is to follow the, the instructions that the judge gives them. Um, but they're not going to be fooled By like tomfoolery, you know, like when you see TV, TV lawyers, like, you know, little tricks, whatever, it's not going to impress them at all. So if you're guilty, ask for federal district court where you might have like kind of like more naive people listening um, to your lawyers nonsense. Um, But they're not going to. But if you're guilty, but if you're innocent, they might not listen to the instructions and they might fall for the prosecutor's nonsense. Right. So that would be my my, my overarching thing, which is I think that the military justice system um, is incredibly fair. Um, In terms of differences, you know, one thing I talked about is the, the review to the Supreme Court, Um, that gets people upset, Um, that gets people upset, and I, and I, as I said, I understand that in the abstract, Um, as a practical matter, I think they're getting upset about nothing, optically, would it look better if they, if everyone could do it, you know, yes, so what did I say, go to your congressman get them to change the law, right? They're actually more responsive to changing laws about the military justice system than they are for anything else, don't you think? Um, So I think that could be. The other thing that um, people don't like, and again, I completely understand this, which is that in the military, I mentioned that instead of a jury, right, you have members, right? So where do the members come from? They come from the command. Who gets to decide whether something is going to a court-martial? The command. So the person who selects the people, the commander, right? So the person who is deciding that someone's going to a court-martial, right, and decide what charges are going to get referred to a court-martial, also gets to pick the people that are going to sit on the court-martial. So people don't like that. And and I think that that is where where the biggest sort of opportunity for monkey business, so to speak, um, exists. But again, like it's set forth in statute, the Supreme Court said years ago in dicta, in dicta, right, and it doesn't make any sense because like there is a specific provision um, in the Fifth Amendment that accepts the, the, mil- the land and naval forces from the requirement of having a grand jury, like it's specifically accepted. So then you go to the Sixth Amendment, right, which talks about your right to a jury, which is different than a grand jury, and there is no such language. Right. So, under normal, have you guys done statutory interpretation at all? Okay. So, under normal rules of statutory interpretation, if you have something in one part in one part of the statute that says, "Except in the land and naval forces," and then in the next thing, it's it's another rule, but it doesn't have that language. Under normal rules of statutory construction, you would say, "Well, then that means, then that means that this that this rule of right does apply, right? That this right does apply." but the Supreme Court, like in dicta in some case, said that it didn't. Um, and Dwight Sullivan, who's a wonderful man, has, has his views as to why it doesn't apply, um, that they forgot. And my rule would have been, that they, they basically, that the founders forgot to put, in the, in the, in the, ex, they forgot to accept the land and naval forces from the jury requirement, to which my response is, well, that's their problem. Right? Then they should fix it, right? Then they should fix it. And if it's a statute, that's what I would say. Then they should fix it. But it's been that way for a long time, Um, and so right now, in the military, you don't get a jury of your peers. You get members that are selected by the person that decided to send you to a court-martial. And do you have to have a unanimous verdict? The answer is, you don't. Like, you don't have to have a unanimous verdict. And so people don't like that, and I can understand why they don't like that. I didn't write the Constitution. I'm not that old. Um, And I didn't write the statutes that basically set up this system. But I think that that is something that gives people pause. Do you guys agree? Like, that's something that gives people pause. Um, you know, they've they've made, they're making efforts, I think, to to change some of the commander's um, role um, with respect to court marshals. Um, do I think that's a good idea or a bad idea? I will not. I, I'm i not going to go there because why I'm sitting as a senior judge. And so I'm just, I'm still working in this system. Um, but my response to all of it is there's a very simple solution, which is, you know, Get Congress to change the the, the rules, right? Um, I think that there are methods that they could make things more simple. Um, that, w- that you could take some of the commanders out of it, which is instead of saying you get to pick everybody, you could be like, "Sir, there, here's a hundred people that are available. Now let's roll a drum and pick eight, right?" So you could it, you could remove the commander's per- personal decision from the process a little bit more than it is. But again, that's not my wheelhouse.
0: Right. Um, I could ask you lots of questions about that kind of stuff. So, but but I would, but I want to. But take isn't a, an
1: interesting thing about the fifth and sixth Amendment? especially in light of the Supreme Court just recently decided that um, a, that a state that didn't have a unanimous jury requirement, like they they said, nope, can't do that. Like you can't do that. You have to have a unanimous a unanimous ver- verdict. So in our federal constitutional system, states are separate sovereigns, right? And so they they sort of like who ranks higher right the military justice system or a state right i would i would argue at least that it's the state we're just a co we're just a a part of the federal system right so does it make a lot of sense to say well states you must have unanimous verdicts but military court martials not so much like and i don't i don't do you know why that was ever the rule why they made that rule yeah i mean i don't know why they ever made the rule i have a student that's writing a paper on it so i will know the answer by this time um in january well we'll have to have you back yeah no, I don't know yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so
0: I do want to leave some time for questions from the audience but I but before I do I you know I want to take advantage of the fact that we have someone who's seen so many advocates and in particular so many appellate advocates about whether if you had a piece of advice that you could give to people who are going to appear before the CAF um, uh, what what would you say to them
1: um, candor I think it's it's not just the CAF I think it's it's anywhere I think it's whether you are drafting a complaint like whether you are drafting a complaint or or writing a motion for summary judgment or Arguing a cafe. It's a it's a duty of candor right which is you need to know the law and the facts and you can't Can I say I won't use it full you can't BS right? I mean you can't BS like you have to be honest um, With the court about the facts and about the law and if you're not you should assume that they actually do know the facts or they should know the facts and they should know the law and that they are going to be very unhappy with you for trying to be deceptive about either, right? Because, um, I mean, I think the only time I ever got angry on a bench, and I, I tried to never get angry um, towards the Appellate Defense counsel because why? They didn't ask to be there. We made them be there by granting their case, right? And so they just have to get up and make some argument. However ludicrous it might seem, like they have to, they have to argue something The government, in my view, and we'll see if anyone disagrees. So the government, in my view, has a different duty. Like, they have a duty to try and do justice. And so when they come and make ridiculous, specious arguments and misrepresent the law or misrepresent the facts, that makes me very angry. And particularly if they tell me that a case that I wrote, like, said something, and I know it didn't say that. And I remember this with Colonel Bruce from the Air Force appellate shop. And I said, really, Colonel Bruce, like, can you tell me, point to me exactly where that opinion that says that. And, of course, he could not. And then he also told us that um, we were bound by the Supreme Court's denial of certiorari in a particular case, that that was binding precedent. Um, Just so you guys know, when the Supreme Court denies certiorari or when we deny deny a petition, that has no precedent. You guys are learning about precedent, right, in legal writing or legal research. So a denial of a petition or denial of a petition for certiorari or denial before our court has no precedential value whatsoever. It just means that we denied it. Like... You know, we were cranky that day. We we were in a we were in a denying frame of mind. I mean, it just means nothing, right? The only press, the only thing that has presidential value then is is like the Army Court of Criminal Appeals decision that has presidential value in the Army.
0: Um, all right, I could keep going, but I want to. I do want to open it up for questions from the audience um, uh, for uh, Judge Ryan.
1: Are they going to ask me about the the space, the Space Corps?
0: <laughs> we. We had not gone over that with them. Okay, <laughs> but, but, we, but we could.
1: No, it's this new. It's this new thing that I think the last administration came up with. It's like a, it's a new branch called the Space Corps, and I have no idea. Like it's like I want to have the Groundhog Groundhog Corps for like under the ground. I'm just like I don't. Is it like is it really a thing? Like how many people are in it?
0: It is a sister service.
1: So who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna do their court of criminal appeals? <laughs> Maybe because they're all in the space and so they can't commit any crimes. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> the problem with the, the problem with the military, right, is that a lot of the people that come in, like you know, the the the, the demographic, right, of, of your average military service, like has a bunch of like 18 to 24 year old guys. And no offense to those of you who are in that demographic, but they do really dumb things, right? And they do them in a very obvious manner so that they get In fairness,
0: ma'am, older men also do dumb things. Well, and women do dumb things too. And a lot of
1: people that did bad things in my court that I saw also did. But there's a lot of just drinks were had, mistakes were made. I'll just leave it with like that. Um, And that's a lot of the things. So if you were in the Space Corps and you were like in a spaceship, There'd be a lot less opportunity to get in trouble, i guess than if you were a young enlisted marine um on okinawa japan that like left base and like went and drank in town right
0: yeah, yeah. more opportunity
1: yeah more opportunity uh and it, it is the marine Corps uh, i mean the marine corps it is the marine corps like we our criminals are the dumbest criminals <laughs> <laughs> i am a marine so i can say that right?
0: <laughs> no I, I, yeah i under- I think that's a pretty high distinction, uh you know there might be competition i've seen I've seen dumb criminals from all services, I would say, but i'll take your I'll take your word for it man yeah
1: well, I, I had the one where the guy like was seen like he was in the p x he and his buddy had just come up with this brilliant scheme that they were going to break in. It's basically a store where you you buy lots of things, but you can only go there and buy things if you're in the military, right. And so he and his buddy go, and they break into the PX, and they have, like, oodles and oodles of stuff, and, like, the the police come up, like, whoa, 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 Did they leave? No, they went in the ceiling. (laughs) It's like, how did they think this was going to end, right? Um, I mean, which leaves the question, like, why did they think they were going to be able to get away with robbing the PX to begin with? Like, I have no idea.
0: Yeah, lots of bad ideas hatched Mm -hmm. in barracks.
1: Though the Jones case was, I think, an Army case where the mastermind criminals, like, stole, like, like, three hundred thousand dollars um and they were going like, they threw it over the fence because they were like we'll get through customs and then we'll go back and get it and it's like what's the problem with that like once you go through customs right. you've gone through customs and so if you want to go back and get it guess what you're gonna have to go through customs okay, again yeah. yeah that was a jones case which is pretty funny right the article 31 case um yeah where they were not really, and they also tried to like engage like their, as a co-conspirator. They were military police, by the way, and they tried to engage their, their other military police augmentee as, as, hey, do you want to go rob this thing with us? Like, yeah, so it did not end well. So usually approaching a police officer is probably not the best way to form a criminal
0: conspiracy. No, yeah, your... no,
1: not, not so much, yeah. But we are out of time. So
0: okay. um, uh, I'd love to talk to you about this some more, uh, but thank you so much oh. for, uh, for coming down and taking so much time. Yeah, with thank us you guys today. so much
1: for coming and listening.